the only reason you have the problems you do in your life is because you don't have bigger problems. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Welcome back, dragons. Or welcome, if this is your first time with us. Uh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for being here with us today. Time's truly the most precious resource any of us have, and the fact that you've chosen to spend some of yours with us is humbling, and we never take it for granted. Today we're joined by speaker, author, musician, and performance coach Jared Hanning. He has a new book coming out called The Thinking Patterns of Success, Why Some People Seem to Work Less But Make More, which we're going to talk about. But he also has been a musician, a violist to be precise, for close to 20 years, playing with the South Carolina Philharmonic. And he's also a TEDx speaker. Uh, you can see some of his talks on YouTube, and I would highly recommend you check them out when you have some time. Oh, did I mention he also has a podcast? <laughs> Jared and I connected uh, over on Podchaser, and I'm really glad we did because he has some fascinating thought processes, some of which I've never heard before, which for me is exciting. I mean, as somebody who's been a fan of self-help ideas since my teens, it's exciting to hear something fresh and new. Uh, and so I just, I can't wait to share this episode with you. So let's listen in. Today we have Jared Hanning on the show. Uh, welcome. Thank you for, for being here today. Happy to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me out. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to have you out. Uh, as, we, as we spoke a little bit before we, we got into the interview piece of this, uh, I'm really excited to uh, learn about your journey and I'm really excited uh, to learn about the, the different projects that, that you've worked on and that you're working on. Um, you, have, uh, you have quite the repertoire for what I've read and there's some interesting things. I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, uh, in hearing about your music background as well as your coaching background and things like that. But I always like to start at the beginning. So uh, where are you from originally? I, let's see here, spent about a week in Alabama, um, maybe seven years in Idaho, and about 20 years in Texas, and then uh, here I am now in Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, interesting. Okay. And uh, so how, how did that journey happen? I mean, did, were you born in Alabama? I, yes, I was born in Alabama. At that time, my dad was uh, working at NASA um, there in Huntsville. Oh, worked there for a little bit, and then he got transferred to another job in Idaho. What was uh, what was uh, your family life like uh, growing up? Are you a, an only child? Were there more kids? Uh, I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my brother and sister, uh, both self-employed. My dad, uh, he retired from his traditional job, and then in his retirement years, he was self-employed as well. So uh, the whole family is kind of entrepreneurial. Uh, my mom has done a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. It's just That's kind of all, always known that, that, yeah. that was sort of family. <laughs> so uh, when you were growing, I find that uh, these days it's different. Uh, I think you're about the same age as I am. Uh, I, education and, and the school systems and so forth are different now than they were when we were growing up, uh, in, in my opinion. It seems like uh, they're, they're 
more challenges or at least different challenges for the kids uh, these days than, than what we dealt with. Um, what what was uh, what was grade school and high school years your formative years what what were those like were did you uh, were they enjoyable did you have challenges that you ran through what what was that kind of like for you um, growing up I didn't feel comfortable in school um, socially I didn't feel like I felt in uh, socially I didn't feel like I fit in uh, apparently it's late for my brain <laughs> um, didn't feel like I felt in. But then uh, I discovered music. Um, I played piano for a couple of years. I didn't realize how much I hated the piano until I discovered the viola. And I, I just, the viola was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea music could be so wonderful. And uh, so that went on to be my undergraduate degree and my master's degree and my profession for about 20 years, uh, classical music there. Uh, but even in classical music, there wasn't a sense of like social connection, social uh, security, if you will, a sense of belonging. So that it wasn't fun. High school was absolutely miserably painful, but not socially. It was just academically. It felt like a colossal waste of time. As a matter of fact, I, I was seriously considering dropping out because it just felt like such a colossal waste of time. My counselor was like, oh my gosh, you could actually just graduate. So I took that option. I just, I graduated high school a year early. Uh, that, that seemed a little bit better than dropping out. <laughs> so I did that and I went on to college and college was of course night and day difference. College was just, it was a joy because there you are, you're working on your craft, you know, you're owning and perfecting your skills in that area. Uh, so college so was great. Why? Uh, well, actually, so, so first of all, that there may be some folks out there that uh, are not familiar with the viola. How, how would you describe that instrument? Uh, it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the orchestra. Um, so we tell a whole lot of jokes. We're, we're the butt of most of them. Most of them are true, by the way. Um, but if, if you're not familiar with the string instruments, um, the viola is about two inches bigger than a violin. You still play it on your shoulder like a violin, and it's not nearly as big as a cello that you, you kind of play sitting down. Gotcha. So, uh, and you gravitated towards the viola. Why did you, do you know why you gravitated towards classical music as opposed to more modern stuff? It, was there some particular piece of that that you really enjoyed? Classical music, I, I can't really answer that. Mm -hmm. um, the viola is a, kind of an interesting story. I'm going to hit on that real quick and then we'll get back to classical music. The viola, I didn't have a choice. I wanted to play strings in the sixth grade because it just looked like the most amazing thing ever. And I walked in and I said, I want to play the violin. And my teacher said, you can't. Your hands are too big. You're going to have to play the cello. And I was like, no, I mean it. I really want to play the violin. He's like, sorry, your hands are too big. You're going to have to play the cello. And I didn't want to play the cello. So I ended up playing the viola. So I was kind of forced into it. Now, in retrospect, he was full of crap. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the size of my hands. It's because he had too many violins in his class and he needed, needed some more cellos to balance it out. Um, however, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, I'm very thankful that it went down that way because the viola did end up being the right instrument for me. As I grew and had a chance to do many more things, I mean, I've sat concert master with the orchestra on violin. I've, I've done first violin work. I've done second violin work. I've done solo work on the violin with the orchestra. And I prefer by far the viola. Uh, so as much as I hate it in the sixth grade, I'm very, very thankful. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. That it worked out that way. Now, classical music, 
I don't know why. I just know that I was always drawn to it. The popular music, the rock and roll, the bands, it seemed very, very simple, very shallow. Um, the classical music seemed to my brain very rich, full of texture um, and, and moving parts and motives. And uh, it just, it was very exciting for my brain to listen to it. And I can't tell you why. I don't know why I was, I was wired that way, but I have, I've always been driv- uh, drawn to the classical, to the classical music. Uh, interesting. I have had friends uh, throughout the years that have been drawn to classical music as well. And I enjoy classical music, but not to the degree, obviously, that someone who plays it does. I have an enjoyment and a love for music. In fact, that's something we, that we kind of have in common. So it's interesting to hear you talk about music in a different genre than I get to play in or that I have played in. So you also said uh, that high school seemed like a waste of time. Why, why was that? High school academically seemed like a waste of time. It, it's just the trope of when are we ever going to use this? Mm, okay. um, as I looked at the things that I could do even then to earn money, um, none of it was found sitting in high school class. <laughs> there was a ton of things I could do to make money and high school wasn't it. So it, intellectually, it wasn't challenging. Academically, it wasn't challenging. Of course, you're in a social environment where the majority of your peers are just consumed with their standing in the social pecking order and the right clothes and listening to the right music. And, and uh, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, that didn't resonate with me. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But college, there I am getting to kind of own and refine and, and perfect uh, my craft. Uh, so college as, as years were good for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was getting to practice. I was going to work on my art and perfect the skill. And, it was and great. so you got your bachelor's in, in music, I guess? Yeah, bachelor's in music performance and then a master's in music performance. Gotcha. So you did, uh, did your, your, your initial schooling, I guess, over at Texas Tech and then um, mm-hmm. where'd you go from Texas there? Tech University, then, then the University of South Carolina for the master's degree. Um, and I stayed in South Carolina. I love the weather. Oh my gosh, I love the weather here. I uh, love the scenery here. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed the symphony very much. At that time, I had been in about 14 different symphonies, and this symphony was just so wonderful. Um, the other symphonies were miserable experiences, uh, but this one was great. And so I was very thankful to be able to play with an orchestra that was actually enjoyable to play with. And then I went on to be their principal viola, um, and I was with that orchestra for about 20 years, and I left about a year ago. Most of my experience with the orchestra is on that level. It comes from uh, movies and so forth. Is the pressure that that is in that uh, venue, is that realistic? Is that what we see? Like in the movies, there's all this pressure about, you know, first chair and second chair and so forth. Is that is that true to life? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yes. Yes. So it's very difficult to get in uh, to a full time symphony like mm-hmm. an A-level orchestra, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Atlanta, Los Angeles. Very difficult to get in. Uh, you, they might have one opening in your instrument every two or three years. And when they do, 300 people show up for the audition. Only one person gets it. Yeah. And these 300 people are the best in the country. They are at the top of their game, playing in um, conservatory graduations, they are principal players in other minor symphonies. I mean, these are the best, and they all show up for that one job, 
and only one person gets it. So it's very difficult to get in. But what's weird about that process is you have no say over who you're going to be working with. So the string players, they share a music stand called a, a desk. And so you are working very closely with this person for your tenure in that orchestra. And you might absolutely hate them. Your life could be completely miserable and you have no control over that because wow. they just have an audition and either you want the job or you don't, but you have no idea who you're gonna be sitting next to. So then it gets into this weird thing where your love becomes your work and you grow to hate it. Mm. Many, if not the vast majority of full-time A orchestra musicians are not happy people. They are miserable. And I don't know if it's because that's what happens when you do what you love for four hours a day and it's like the same songs every year, you just kind of lose the passion for, it. I don't know, um, but they, don't tend to be happy people. Then it gets into the drama, like you mentioned, of first, principal, second, associate. Um, that, because we're getting higher up in the section where there's more and more solos, where the better and better performers are, this is obviously very true in the ballet world as well, there's a lot more ego at stake. It's who's the best of the best and who yeah. wants to be in the spotlight for being the best and who wants all the acknowledgement for being the best. And the closer <laughs> you get to the front of the section, the more you're going to find those people because they have to audition to sit there. They sure. have to say, raise your hand and say, yeah, you know, I want to be recognized as the best in this section. So I'm going to try out for the first chair spot. So obviously they've got ego and mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it does get messy. When it comes to the orchestra and that pressure, how did how did you deal with that? Like, did you have some methodologies that you kind of used? Did you, uh, you know, one of the things I do is I like to try to do some meditation uh, to try to calm myself. I work in a high pressure career uh, in information technology, so uh, you know, anxiety is a, a way of life and has been. And so, uh, but is that how were there any coping mechanisms to deal with the stress and and all that, or was it just we're just going to keep trying. I didn't have to deal with it. And that's was partially by choice. So uh, the majority of the miserable musicians are located in a orchestras. These are full time. Um, they're going to pay anywhere from like 80,000 to 120,000. Then there's an, another tier of orchestras, the B, uh, and this is full time, but it doesn't really pay enough to live on. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is going to be uh, orchestras like maybe Charleston or Nashville, where you're making $30,000 a year, $40,000 a year. And so you still have to kind of hustle and scrape together a bunch of side gigs, play weddings and teach private lessons on the side and do what you can to make ends meet. And then there's one below that, the C level. And these are the orchestras that pay like $3,000 a year because they only do one concert a month. Right. They just, for whatever reason, that town doesn't have enough budget to hire you for any more than that. Those, that was the orchestra that I played in. And it was partially by choice because I noticed that these musicians didn't take it for granted. For them, they got to play. So when it was time for the concert that month, everybody's showing up as if it's a, a privilege and an opportunity. And it feels wonderful oh, to get to do. Yeah. Um, whenever I was around the full-time musicians in the A orchestra, they, they weren't happy. And so as I looked at, gosh, do I want to go down that audition road and try out for that kind of job? No, I don't. I like this job where I play once a month, 
but because there's time in between the concerts, I start to miss it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't have to deal with any of that drama. Um, the only thing that would even get close to sort of kneeling to deal with and cope with would be, I did have terrible stage fright and performance anxiety for most of my career. All the advice is crap. It doesn't work. Eat a banana before you go on stage. Imagine <laughs> the audience in their underwear. Just do your best. Be sure you've practiced. It's all crap. It just makes it worse. But there is something that does work. Happy to talk about that if you want. Um, but there in the kind of 11th hour of my career, I finally learned what works. And it yes, was a transformational I, I definitely do want to get into that. Uh, and, you know, let's just let's get into that now. Sure. I think this is a great time. So how what did you discover that worked? Because I know, that, you know, fear of public speaking, being in front of people, uh, you know, it, it's a major fear for a lot of people. I've been lucky that, that it hasn't really been a fear of mine. I enjoy getting in front of people. The drama was my major in college. It was just fun for me. I still dealt with some excitement, anxiety type of stuff. You know, just we're getting ready to go on. This is exciting. But uh, for the most part, uh, it's always been enjoyable. But I listen to people tell me all the time, oh my goodness, I could never talk in front of a crowd or, or whatever. So yeah, man, tell us the secret. Performance anxiety. First, I'm going to tell you a story. Please do. Um, and then we'll look at the principle. And then I'll show you how that applied in my life. Um, that set me free. So at that time, I was working, uh, I would teach and speak on the musical secrets of leadership. I, I would do some like speaking and training, coaching on the side. Um, and the reason is most people don't know this, but when you're in music, whether you're clapping your hands to the radio or singing along, in that moment that you are engaged in the creation of music, you're using more different parts of your brain than any other activity of your life. This is well documented with MRI studies, and this is a sharp contrast with, say, athletic performance, where the better your body is performing, the less of your brain is using. Your brain enters a quiet meditative state because it can't afford to be gobbling up glucose. That needs to go to the muscles. That doesn't mean that music is better than athletics. It just means you're using your brain differently. So at that time, I was teaching people how to access different parts of their brain on demand, because when you get stuck, and you keep hitting the same obstacles in your life, being able to tap into a different way of thinking on purpose is what helps you to see what you weren't able to see earlier. So I was training and coaching and the musical secrets of leadership and productivity and that kind of thing. Well, one of the principles in that world is the only reason you have the problems you do in your life is because you don't have bigger problems. And as you think about stage fright, performance anxiety, so it's the same thing. The only reason you are experiencing this kind of anxiety in this setting, whether it's giving a speech or whether it's sitting down at a blank canvas to paint or to create your book or to write up a business contract or to make a proposal, like whatever the, the anxiety is, the only reason you're experiencing anxiety around that is because you don't have a bigger problem in your life. Um, Gandhi, many people don't know this, but before he was the man who spoke uh, so profoundly that he united a nation divided in civil war, he was terrified of speaking in public. He was a lawyer in England, actually, and on his first case, he fled the courtroom because he was afraid of speaking in public. His assistant had to close for him. On his second case, he, he refunded his client all the money the night before, said, I can't represent you in clear conscience because I'm terrified of speaking in public. So you got to wonder what happened in his life that took him from terrified of speaking in public 
to the Gandhi that we know, where a fear of speaking in public didn't even exist. And you're like, well, did he buy an ebook about public speaking? Did he sign up for Tony Robbins public speaking? <laughs> well, no, because intuitive, you know, that those things keep you in the world of dealing with it on some level. And clearly Gandhi, it didn't even exist. Well, here's what happened. He went to South Africa. He was going to try to be a lawyer there. He noticed that his people, the people of India were horribly oppressed and he decided that he was going to be up to the business of peace in India. Now, nobody knighted him or gave him permission or asked him. He took this on for himself. He chose and get this. This was his qualification. He said, there will be peace in India because I said so. His word was his qualification. Because I said so, there will be peace in India. And he chose it. Well, here's the deal. When you are about the business of peace for an entire nation, then speaking in public that isn't even a blip on your radar. You don't care what they think of you because you're not in the business of people liking you. You're in the business of peace for an entire nation and you'll do whatever it takes. So here I am on stage after years and years of debilitating stage fright. I mean, arms, legs shaking, hyperventilating, and it's so demoralizing because when you're practicing for a solo in classical music, you will spend six months practicing five and six hours a day for a concert that's gonna last 30 minutes. It feels like you've got a lot at stake. And so in the moment that it counts the most, when you play your worst, it's demoralizing. And, and what would happen is every single recital or audition or concert, I would feel so bad that I would wanna sell my instrument and leave the business entirely. And that went on for nine tenths of my career in classical music. Well, here I am on stage and my solo's coming up and it's all starting to hit me. But I had been speaking and teaching on the musical secrets for a while. And I thought, you know, what if I just practice what I preach? What if I applied what works in business what works in speaking to music. And so realizing that the only reason I was terrified was because I didn't have a bigger problem, I took on a bigger problem. You see, up to this point, I was about the business of trying to get all the notes right, trying to play my best, trying to look good, trying to do a good job. The thing is, those are targets that we cannot hit because they don't exist. There is no point in the continuum that you could get to say that was your best. Cause as soon as you get there, there was always a little bit more that it was perfect. Cause as soon as you get there, there's a little bit more mm. that the, all the notes were played right. Because as soon as you get there, you realized, ah, I could have done this a little bit better. It doesn't exist. So I looked at the music and I had to take on a bigger problem. So I asked myself, what is it about this passage of music that I want to share with my audience? Why do I care that they would hear this? And as you're listening to this, I want you to think of when you experience that kind of debilitating pressure, fear, maybe it's a conversation that you're avoiding, 
Maybe it's asking for a raise. Maybe it's quitting your job. Maybe it's starting your own business. But when that fear sets in, it's the same thing. The only reason you're experiencing that fear is because you're not up to something bigger. So there I was having to decide what's bigger. And for whatever reason, as I looked at the music, it spoke to me that this was about the felt experience of being loved. So I decided that I was gonna be about the business of my audience having the felt experience of being loved. I was gonna be about that business. And I was gonna leave the business of trying to get all the notes right, trying to look good and avoid looking bad, trying to play my best. Now I had never done this before. This was new. So I start into my solo and I get into that first note and my brain fires off. What if you missed this note? And I had to recommit myself. I'm not in that business. I'm in the business of what's possible in my audience's life, that they would have the felt experience of being loved. And then I would get into the second note and my brain would be like, ah, I think that was a little out of tune. <laughs> and I'd have to recommit myself. I'm not in the business of trying to play all the notes perfectly. I'm not in the business of trying to play my best. I'm taking a stand for what's possible in my audience's life, that they would have the felt experience of being loved. And every single note, I had to recommit myself to being about something bigger. It was exhausting. <laughs> and I had never done that before. But at the end of it, I had played better than I ever had under pressure. But the real victory is that I had felt better than I ever had under pressure, and I couldn't wait to do it again. This was the first time that I played a solo and couldn't wait to do it again. And that was the real victory for me because I took on something bigger, standing for what was possible in my audience's lives. So when you're stuck with that business plan to start your new business and quit your job or book proposal, take on something bigger. That's, Don't do I mean, it because you want to write a book. It's an amazing thought process. Uh, and, and it leaves me with so many questions. That's great. That's great advice. That's the, something that speaks directly to me. I, I, I love that thought process of taking on something bigger, but also uh, that's not a typical thought process that you would have in that moment. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. You know, we all some of the things that, that you say on your podcast and in, in, in your book are are just very different than what you normally hear. It's not the same regurgitated stuff like you were saying earlier. You know, I'm already on stage. I, I can't eat a banana now. Uh, you know, I, I get that. That makes sense. And so part of what I hear you say is so fascinating because I haven't really heard it before. It uh, kind of a new thing, at least for my ears. I'm interested in, I'd like to kind of circle back around to the musical secrets and in, in being a, a speaker or trainer in regards to that. Uh, how, how did that come about? Is musical secrets something, uh, is that a, like a, a course that already existed that you kind of learned and then and trained people in, or was that your own sort of uh, amalgamation of stuff? Uh, it was my own way of teaching people in the business space how to innovate, how to access different parts of their brain on demand. Um, so the things that work in classical music and in performance, and I would teach them how to apply that to business. 
Um, so most of the people were uh, that that would take that type of training were business people, entrepreneurs, that type of thing. Yes. Or, yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And then you and then you used it yourself. Okay. So uh, I've always been a big fan of Seth Godin. I don't know if you're familiar with with mm -hmm. Seth's work. Uh, you know, he likes to talk about dancing with the fear and uh, how the fear never goes away. You just have to learn to live with it and dance with it and so forth. That doesn't seem like the same type of message that I'm getting from you. Uh, and maybe it is. I'm just not looking at it the correct way. Are you saying, uh, am I hearing you correctly when you say something to the, to the effect of you need a bigger problem? Does that mean you need a bigger fear so that this fear is not as big? Or does that make sense, the question that I'm asking? Um, I, I think Seth Godin's advice is, is good. Um, I think there is a place for just accepting that the fear is not going to go away. And just because you feel afraid doesn't mean it's dangerous. Courage is not this magical place where you don't feel afraid anymore. And that's why you're going to act. Courage is you feel afraid. And despite that, you're still going to move forward because you're moving forward based on how you want to feel in the future, not how you feel in the present. I do think there's a place for that. This principle that the only reason you have the fear is because you're not up to something bigger erases the fear. When you take on a bigger problem, you are no longer afraid. This is the, the soldier in war. If you are trying to stay alive, you're going to be terrified. If you're trying to keep others alive, then it doesn't bother you as much because you're up to something bigger. Um, if you struggle with your, your health, your weight, your diet, your discipline, whatever it is, you're going to struggle with it. You're going to be on the wagon, off the wagon. But if you decide one day, even though you have no business doing it, that you're going to finish a triathlon that year, well, instantly you're no longer struggling with your health and diet because you got a much bigger problem on your hands. <laughs> and, and it's not because you have more willpower and discipline and focus. It's just, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. How am I going to stay alive for 120 miles? If you struggle with your relationship with your teenage son or daughter, well, yeah, you're going to struggle with that. But the minute that you get on Facebook and announce to your Facebook family that you are writing the book on success with your teenage child, and it's going to be available in December, well, now you've got a bigger problem on your hands. <laughs> You're up to something bigger, and that changes the way you solve the problem. You're not writing the book because you have the answer. You're writing the book for all the other parents out there that need the answer. And you are standing in the gap for what's possible for them, and you're committed to allowing the answer to flow through you. You're up to something bigger. I love that thought process. It makes sense. I mean, when you, when you think about it, it actually makes sense. Uh, and I love it. I, it's something that, that I'm going to start attempting in my life, you know, immediately to try to, uh, you know, deal with that because I, I that's, um, yeah, I know I sound like I'm gushing, but you know, it's, I've been an intellectual most of my life. And so one of the things that really gets my juices going is great thought processes. And that's a great thought process. I think you've got a new book coming out, right? Yes, sir. The thinking patterns of success. Yeah. And, and I've, I've read uh, the executive summary of it. Uh, and there's just so many really great things in there. I love, 
I love the paradigm shifts that occur uh, in some of the some of the stories that you tell uh, in, in because paradigm shifts. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the seven habits of highly effective people. It's uh, been really good in my life. And uh, some of the par- you're learning about paradigm shifts and, and things along those lines. I always look for those now. I always look for, you know, where, what am I missing and how can I see something in a new perspective and how can that new perspective uh, be beneficial to me or those around me? Mm-hmm. And so I was really kind of excited going through and, and reading that, that summary. How did you get to there? Like, you know, how, how did you uh, get to the point where you, where you were discovering the different pieces like the mind map and, and that kind of stuff? Can you tell me the story of how you got to where you're like, I, I'm going to write this book uh, because it's going to help people? Ah, yes. So this is a much different journey um, than the world of classical music. Um, this takes us into the work I do now. Uh, in mindset performance, uh, my clients normally double their business revenue by purposely working half as many hours. And that's made possible because there's <laughs> that's a heck of a sales level. pitch, man. That's a heck of a sales pitch. Okay. You're going to work less. You're going to make twice as much. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be, I'll be a hundred percent honest. When I first, uh, started, uh, when we first started talking, uh, I, you know, I, I listened to some of that and I thought, okay, um, is this, is this a scam? Is this, you know, like, is this one of those, uh, and, and please don't take offense to it, but I've run into so many people selling something that yeah, you do. <laughs> you, when, you, when you get to the other side, you're like, why did, why did I spend all this time, effort, energy, and money? And most importantly, why did I spend my time? Because that's the most precious resource I have and I can't get that back. And that's usually what I'm more irritated about than even the money. Cause I can always get more money, but I, I can't get my time back. So yeah, I mean, thank you. Yes, it does sound like snake oil. It does. Um, the illustration there, the easy illustration before we get into how it's made possible is when you are in a corn maze, you get to the end of the row and you're not sure if you should go left or right. And this is where most people make decisions in their life. Well, guess, do something. And then that turns into, you know, if I run faster down this row, I can get to the end faster and make a decision faster. And theoretically, I'll be able to make more decisions faster and I can get out of the maze sooner. And that's how a lot of people solve problems in their life by working harder and faster. But if I was to take you and stand you on a ladder, well, now you can see the whole picture and suddenly it's no mystery. That's what thinking at a higher level is like. That's how it changes your brain's ability to become more resourceful. Um, We looked at that a little bit at Gandhi by taking on a bigger problem. It changed the way his brain interpreted fear around public speaking. Um, We looked at that when you have other problems uh, where um, a relationship um, or a nonprofit, for example, if your nonprofit is stuck because you, you got to make $10,000 this month or you're going under, well, you're going to have a hard time with that. But if instead you drive down the road and sit in the boardroom of the nonprofit that is stuck because they got to come up with $100,000 that month or they're going under and listen to how they talk and listen to the types of ideas that they come up with and listen to how they think about solving those problems, you'll realize that $10,000 is nothing. And you'll go back and raise it 
in a couple phone calls, just because you're thinking at a higher level about reaching people and making a difference. It, it shifts when you take on the bigger problem. So we put you on a ladder. Now you can see the whole corn maze. Well, the pickle is you can't read the label from the inside of the jar. So when it comes to business, when it comes to being frustrated because there's always more on your to-do list and you have time to get done, or you, it just seems like working harder and faster doesn't clear it up, or it just seems like the relationships and the team dynamics aren't, don't ever go the way that they could go. When it comes to that, you're, you're trying to solve it by working harder and faster. You're trying to solve it by coming up with good ideas. You're trying to solve it by working smarter. And the problem is the brain can only think of what already makes sense. So working smarter is just coming up with more of the same ideas that have you in that mess to start with. What we got to do is get on the ladder so we can see the whole picture. And that's where the work that I do comes in. We use a Nobel nominated process that prints up a graph of your thinking patterns. Now, because they're your thinking patterns, that graph is like a fingerprint. It's as unique as you are. And once we get it mapped out, just like standing on a ladder and seeing the corn maze, you're able to see right away where the blind spot was that was tripping you up all that time. And where the breakthrough is that your mind just hasn't seen yet. Anytime you're hitting those, those obstacles, there's three things that are going on. Number one, you're already working hard. Um, you're doing everything you know to do. If there's something else you could do, you'd be doing it. You're no slacker. And what this means is working harder isn't going to make a difference or it would have by now. Number two, you're coming up with good ideas. They're reasonable and rational. They're realistic. And what this means is working smarter isn't going to make a difference or it would have by now. Number three, your breakthrough will at first sound like a bad idea because if it made sense to do, you'd already be doing it. And that's the problem. How do you think of the thing that doesn't make sense? You can't, the brain isn't wired that way. It's back to trying to read the label from the inside of the bottle. We got to get outside the bottle. So in my work in mindset performance, where we uh, take people through a series of mindset pushups that rewire the way their brain solves problems, effectively giving their mind a new scaffolding to cling to so that they can solve problems from a more efficient, higher level, came to the point, well, why don't I just put this in a book instead of sharing this with people one-on-one -on -one, how about I just share it one on many? Um, so in the book, The Thinking Patterns of Success, you get to see the actual thinking patterns, what they look like. You get to see how um, people use them in their lives and their situations, whether it's a home situation or a business situation or a relationship situation. Um, you get a taste for some of the mindset push-ups that uh, rewire the way your brain solves problems. Um, right now, the book's going through its final edits on the way to the printer, but you don't have to wait. You can just download the executive summary and um, dive in, get started right there. It's kind of amazing. And as we've, as we have spoken uh, before, a lot of this stuff speaks directly to me. I've always been kind of a big picture kind of guy. I've always tried to see the big picture. Uh, and for me, that's how, that's how I function best is with philosophies that translate down to uh, different types of tasks or, or whatever, because everything's built on a philosophy of one sort or another, a thought process, uh, if you will. And so thinking about being able to see the whole playing field is exciting. 
you were talking about the Nobel nominated process. How did you stumble across that? I mean, is, I mean, is that your process? I did not invent the process. Uh, Robert S. Hartman in the 1950s came up with it and his work on how the brain values the world, how it recreates the world um, is the Nobel nominated algorithm. And it's ridiculous. Uh, happy to talk about that and the difference between this and other assessments you might be familiar with like DISC or Myers-Briggs uh, because there's a reason it's Nobel nominated. It is night and day difference. But yeah, he came up with that. Back in the day, they used to do it with pencil and, and like slide rules, that kind of thing. Um, thankfully, now we've got the process uh, digitized, which mm -hmm. makes it a little bit easier to share with people. Um, and I was at a speaking conference and I ran into a guy and he, you know, heard about the work that I was doing, training people how to access different parts of their brain on demand. And he's like, man, have you ever tried this? And it was like the missing link for the work I had doing. I was able to show you how to access different parts of your brain so that you could solve those puzzles by thinking in different ways, but I wasn't able to show you how you were currently using your brain. So in a way you kind of didn't have a clear path from where you're at to where you want to go because I wasn't able to show you where you're at. And that was the missing link. So when that came into my, my world serendipitously, it was, it was wonderful. Happy accidents are always, always wonderful. It was, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I've had conversations with my wife about, uh, you know, different uh, things that we've tried to change in our lives in the past, uh, where you try so hard and, and I find myself having this conversation with her. I'm like, it just, it's, it, it, it can't be, we, something's missing. It can't, it shouldn't be this hard to change my eating pattern. It shouldn't be this hard to lose weight. It shouldn't be this hard to do something because I know I'm an intelligent individual. I know I'm competent. I have career to, to show for it, you know, but the thing is, is why do I struggle with these different things? And which is why this is kind of such a, a light bulb for me personally. How is this different? I know um, I've got some some people that like different assessments, uh, the Myers-Briggs, uh, for example. How does this, how is this a little different than some of those other assessments? Uh, I don't know that we have to delve super deep into it, but just at, at a, a cursory or a high level. Well, let's talk about that, uh, but also a comment real quick. I'm glad that you pointed out your observation about something's not right here. Like we're smart people. We're, why isn't this working? Mm -hmm. Because early on when you're young, if something doesn't work, it does kind of make sense. Well, let me try that again. When you get older though, and you're getting to the end of the year and you're like, all right, okay, no, 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 next year. Next year, yeah, I'm really gonna apply myself. And then you get to the end of that year and you're like, no, 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 do over, do over. This year doesn't count because grandma was sick and the kids had to go to town and had that thing at work. This year doesn't count. Next year, really gonna apply myself. <laughs> After a couple of years, you kind of gotta go, like you, like you said, maybe trying harder isn't the answer. What's missing? Because if trying harder was the answer, you would have done it by now. Yeah, You know, if, if applying yourself was the answer, you would have. What's, what's missing? And that's where we get into the principle that if you keep hitting an obstacle, it's not because you aren't trying hard enough. It just means there's something about that situation for whatever reason that your mind hasn't seen yet. It's a blind spot in the way your mind solves problems. And until we get 
your thinking patterns mapped out, we have no way of knowing where that blind spot is. We just don't. Um, when you're driving in your car and you accidentally back into something, you don't keep backing into it. You get out of the car <laughs> yeah. because by getting out of the car, it physically changes your vantage point. And that's the only way you can see things that you couldn't see from where you were sitting. But in life, when we run into an obstacle, we keep running into it as opposed to physically moving our vantage point to see what we couldn't see from there. Um, the way we do that in my world is the, the mind scan by mapping out the thinking patterns. And then of course, mindset pushups to strengthen wherever the blind spot was so people can have the life that they feel life is calling them to. Okay, enough of that. Back to your other question. What makes the mind scan different from DISC and Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and Strength Finders and Colby and uh, Bank and, okay. Here's the deal. The majority of those are questionnaire based. Because they're questionnaire based, your subconscious is going to work gaming the system. It's trying to predict what it thinks they want to know and trying to answer based on how it wants to be perceived. There's no way around this. This is just how your brain's wired. What happens though, because a questionnaire based, you end up with self-reporting error. And this would be like going to see the doctor and the doctor walks into your room, but he's holding somebody else's test results. This is the problem with self-reporting error. The second thing is while they give you information, it is distractingly interesting. It's not helpful though. They say, you have these traits, you're a blue four, you're a INFJ, whatever. It's interesting. They say 25% of the population is also like this. And that's interesting. And you feel like validation, and, but it's not helpful. If you went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you have this condition, don't worry, we have a 25% success rate treating it. <laughs> you'd kind of want to know what side of that 25% line you were on. We don't care about the population. We care about you. And what this does different is it is a scientific measurement of the individual. And because of that, it becomes their breakthrough map. It's, we're sorry you've been hitting this obstacle. Here's the blind spot. It's not your fault. Anybody else that has that would be experiencing the exact same frustrations. Do this tomorrow. I promise you'll see a whole new world. That's what makes a difference. I find myself grasping to 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 talk with you because I'm thinking through this stuff so much. Like, you know, my brain's just going 90 miles an hour going, oh, oh, I, I this resonates with me because of this and because of this. I've made darn near a career out of predictive, you know, what 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 answer does someone want? What answer does someone need and how can I weave in what they want to hear with the reality that I know so that it's palatable for them so that we can move forward in a direction. Um, and I do that all the time in the corporate world. I've done it my entire life. Uh, I've always been really good at that. But I, I what you're saying about and I don't remember the term you used uh, predictive um, something or other. But uh, when I take tests, I am always on the guard for trying to give a correct answer uh, as a correct answer from me as opposed to how I think it like a lot of times I'm great at taking tests because I'm great at being able to understand what they're looking for what is this what does this question want 
what is the answer they're looking for here? Not what is the answer that I would give or what is the real answer? But, you know, hey, we've got multiple choice, you know, take the best answer. Yeah. That kind of that kind of thought process has always bothered me because mm -hmm. I want to find the truth. I want to find the reality, whatever it may be, so that I can either fix or enhance or get better at whatever it is. I, you know, when I was uh, a drama major, when I was on stage, I thrived on criticism. I hated criticism, but I thrived on it because I couldn't get better without it. There was no way for me to be able to be better at giving my audience a suspension of disbelief if I could not, if I couldn't see what I was doing wrong. So criticism is so important for me. In fact, and I'll give you an example just out of my own life. I went in to uh, record a song today um, in hopes of uh, putting out a video in the next couple of days to help to get out the vote in this in, in the U.S. Uh -huh. And okay. so I solicited uh, from a number of my music friends some feedback uh, in regards to this. And I didn't do it from just two friends. I did it from a bunch of friends because I knew that some of them, no matter how many times I honestly say, I need you to tell me the truth. I have to understand what you are seeing. Don't tell me this is a good job. Please don't tell me my voice performance was good. Uh, you know, tell me what do you feel? How can it be better? What, what would what is wrong? Because I need that feedback to get better. Mm -hmm. So when 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 we talk about getting outside of the jar, that's a, that's a that's a great example to be able to see the label. Uh, that's exciting because then you can start to address issues. I, mm -hmm. I've gone on triads many times in regards to my frustration with our educational system because we teach to tests instead of trying to teach, uh, in, instead of trying to educate. Uh, and that tests shouldn't be for who gets into college, in my opinion. Tests should be for where where are the deficiencies, where are the flaws, and how can we help people overcome them? And that's almost kind of what it sounds like uh, your your process here uh, is is going through. Uh, so I just I had to I had to kind of step up on a, on a soapbox there because what you're saying really resonates with me on a personal level, uh, and I've seen it in many other times. I just don't know that. You know, sometimes we're not self-aware enough to be able to say, I'm cheating this, I'm gaming this, you know, I'm, I'm doing that. That's something I've had to work on in my life in the last decade or so is to try to be more authentic, try to be more vulnerable and, and try to be more honest with those kinds of things because that's the only way for me to get better. And that's why when you get honest feedback, it's the most important data you can get because mm. that's mm. the data that you can make a decision on. So that's what, one of these things that it's really exciting to me to hear. So how, how do you, uh, how do you put, I mean, you put this all together into a, into a book, which I'm, I'm excited for uh, reading it and doing now you can do the, uh, where do you get this mind map done? So, uh, as soon as I learned about it years ago, I put it up on my site just so that I could share it with everybody. Uh, you don't need to be a client of mine to take it. Um, you can hop on the site, take it, try it out for yourself. Um, you can download a sample report if you're skeptical. Uh, but what I tell everybody is, is be skeptical. Like, don't believe me. Don't take my word for it. This isn't going to do a hill of beans for you. It's not going to make any difference. It's not going to tell you anything you don't already know. Money back guarantee. You got nothing to lose. Try it out and see if it makes a difference for what you need. See if it gives you the feedback that you need to take your life to the next level to think of the thing you can't think of. So they just go to my website, mindsetperformance.co. 
Um, you can take the mind scan, try it out for yourself. Uh, money back guarantee again, like, you know, you've got nothing to lose. Tell me a little bit about some of the uh, uh, some of the case studies uh, things. We, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Is there any uh, any stories uh, that really illustrate what you you know put together that would be good? Yes, lots right. of stories. Well, I oh love stories, man. We're all about stories on this podcast, so man, let's. So do we it. got stories all over the map. Um, I've got personal stories. I've got meaningful stories. I've got family stories. I've got business stories. I mean, all over the map. Um, had a guy who was in real estate, commercial real estate. He was buying and selling apartment buildings, working as a broker, and he had the golden handcuffs on. He was not quite making enough to make a difference, but not quite making enough to leave to find something else. He was just flat miserable. And so we take the mind scan, and one of the things that came out in his thinking patterns is that he had a tendency to undervalue his sweet spot. Now, the thing is, you can't make a difference and you're clumsy. You've got to be in your genius. Well, he had a tendency to discount his genius just a little bit and treat all tasks as equal. Well, it's got to get done. Someone's got to do it, that kind of thing. So seeing that as an opportunity, he restructured his day to spend more time in his sweet spot. Now, this seems like innocuous. It seems stupid. But the thing was, at that time, he also wasn't valuing his sweet spot right um, the way he calculated the value was off a little bit. He realized in doing that, when he did the math again, that the value of his time was worth $3,000 an hour when he did this one thing that he enjoyed the most and made the biggest difference. So what that led to is instead of having the golden handcuffs where he wasn't making enough to make a difference or enough to leave, it turned into running a multiple six-figure business, making three to five phone calls a day. Like, wow. that's it. Play golf the rest of the day, yo. <laughs> um, we had a financial planner. He's making 400000 a year. You think this is a very high-functioning individual. What are you going to tell him? He doesn't already know. Takes the mind scan. Out of that came that he also had a tendency to devalue his sweet spot. So he restructures his day, seeing that as an opportunity to spend more time in his zone of genius. The thing that he did best, uh, enjoyed the most, made the biggest difference when he was doing it, made a change with one of his office administrators so they could hold him accountable to honoring his genius for what it was instead of sweeping it under the rug. That took him from 400000 to $1.2 million over the next year and a half. That's just the power of thinking at a higher level, walking in your sweet spot, beginning to honor and protect it. Um, had a lady, she is running a multiple six-figure business, during the day, at home, though, she had four little kids, four littles, like eight years old and younger. Wow, okay. If you guys are out there and you've got kids, you know how much energy and how exhausting it is to take care of littles. Well, that's where she's at. Now, the problem is she would come home from the air quote successful businesswoman, and she would come into busy woman. So now, I mean, all the stuff that you got to do when you got littles and, and taking care of the house and I mean... So now she's off work, but she's still working. And this is going by and it's just eating her up that she's not present with her kids while they're growing up. Now, when you're in that situation, you try all the stuff that you can think of to try. But remember the stuff that you can think of is what has you in the situation to start with because by definition, it makes sense. So she's trying all the stuff with her spouse that most people would try and you know how well that works and it's not because he's a bad guy 
It's just for whatever reason, it was a blind spot in his mind. So she had a blind spot. She wasn't able to get it in his head. And he had a blind spot. He wasn't able to see it. And she's trying everything that you would think to try. It's not working. Well, she takes the mind scan, gets her, her thinking patterns printed up. And in that, she realized that her mind had a tendency to overvalue the role that emotional bank deposits played in, in relationship, especially high value relationships. So by thinking, learning to think differently about how those communications happen, she goes back to her spouse has the same conversation she's been trying to have for eight years about being busy during the day and then busy at home and missing having her kids grow up because all this stuff's got to get done and someone's got to do it and she wants to be there for the kids. This, by the way, is one of my favorite stories because I think it's the most meaningful one. But because her brain had learned to think differently about that conversation and about that communication, he heard her differently for the first time and in that conversation they created for the first time a third option and that created 10 free hours a week for her to be present with her kids growing up and not busy working in the house wow. doing house and kid and stuff right now this is exciting this is really exciting life-changing for a mother of four littles she takes that same conversation now that she understood conversation and communication in a way that she hadn't before, takes that same conversation back to work and creates 30 free hours a week to work on her business in creative and vision and direction and get out of working in her business in administration and operations. Wow. That's and that's amazing. the power of getting out of your own head so you can see something you couldn't see before. Had a lady, she's making uh, cookies. I know that sounds silly, but her cookies are beautiful works of art, my friend. When I first had one of her cookies, my brain said, oh, this is what <laughs> cookies are supposed to taste like. Now I get it. I mean, her cookies are insane, right? Um, when a national war hero is having a medal ceremony, they call her for the cookies. John Daly, the golfer, calls her for the cookies when he's in the Masters, which is close to Columbia. Any which way, she had this problem where she loved her day job, loved it. And she loved making cookies. So she'd leave her day job and she'd go do her side job, making cookies. The thing is she'd work 40 hours at the day job. She'd work 50 hours making cookies. I mean, staying up all hours of the night, just getting tired as can be. And this is going on and on and on. But remember how you think about solving the problem is actually what keeps the problem in place. Mm -hmm. So she takes the mind scan, gets her thinking patterns printed up and she's able to see right away, bam. The blind spot that was tripping her up this whole time. And that year, she tripled her cookie income and cut her labor time in half to meet the demand. This allowed her the free choice to continue working at the job she loved or step away. But the victory was she was able to choose freely. That's... 
That's amazing. I, and I, of course, I have 10 million questions. But first of all, let's say we take the mind map. How do you decipher those results to go, oh, that's where my blind spot is? Is that all built into the to the results? Or how how do you go about that? Or do you need a coach or somebody to kind of help you get through and, and figure out where that blind spot is based on the analysis from the mind map? Uh, so this this process, it does print up a report. Uh, you do get a 21-page report. It's got a lot of detail in it, um, and that's wonderful. It prints up a graph of your thinking patterns, which is 95% of the value is found in that graph. The catch, though, is to get the value, it helps to have a guide for the maze. So like you can take the mind scan and you'll get like an email with a pro strength paragraph and a con weakness paragraph. And you read that and go, oh, wow, that's fascinating. How in the world did it get all that information from what I did to take the test? Oh my gosh, that's just absolutely fascinating. Yes, it is fascinating and it's interesting and it's on the same level as all the other assessments. It's not helpful. It is distractingly interesting. If you want to see a breakthrough in your life, then we need to go through the data that's in the graph of your thinking patterns. And so what we do is we just pull it up on the screen. We like schedule a Zoom session and myself or one of my assistants will go through the details with you. It's a long call. It's usually about an hour because there's so many amazing nuggets in there. And at the end of that, you're left with a really clear action plan on what to do different tomorrow to start to experience what life has been calling you to all this time. Because now your brain has seen something that it hasn't seen yet. If you were an individual, in this case, who hadn't started a business, let's say you, you've got the golden handcuffs and you work a, a, a normal nine to five or whatever, you know, you, you make, you make a decent living, you know, but you don't necessarily, you're not going to retire anytime soon. You don't have the flexibility you want in your life. You can't spend as much time as you want with your kids. You want to do something different. Or you know that you want to give more to the world. You know that you have more to give to the world. Uh, you know that you have value to provide to the world, but you, you don't know how to go about it. Does this help someone in that type of situation to be able to try to find uh, a path uh, that they want to go down or do they need to already kind of be like okay I'm, I'm already this uh, you know I'm already doing real estate or I'm already baking cookies and, and this will just help me bake the cookies better or or whatever the case may be uh, you know which is a great story I love I love that story the um, number of those the the one about the bike and going faster I love too you've, you've got a lot of really great uh, stories but can you be in that place are you familiar with uh, Gay Hendricks in the big leap that book I love the big leap. Great okay. book. I find myself in just about everything I do in the zone of excellence. That's why I'm a jack of all trades, uh, because I, I'm good at a lot of different things. And but I, I, I have such a hard time trying to find a quote unquote zone of genius. So how how would something along these lines help someone like me who hasn't really you know i just threw some stuff against the wall and said you know what i think plain ordinary dragon would be a great podcast and it would serve a lot of people and so i'm going to do that because uh you know marie florio says you know clarity comes from action and so i just took action and now we're 75 or something episodes into this uh, and it's great and i wouldn't trade it for the world i learned so much and, and i've i've met interesting people and i've i've learned things and the great thing is, is that I've had people who have been on the podcast 
as well as people who listen to it, reach out to me and tell me how much it means to them. And mm. so it gives mm. me purpose, which is is great. Uh, and and I love do I love the interview and the process and so forth. Uh, but I hate editing, <laughs> uh, you know, in 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 challenges. But I I can't really afford to hire an editor. But I don't even know that I want the podcast to make money. But you, can you see I'm kind of all over the map in some respects of you know where do I want to go? I know I've got more to give, but you know, how do I get there? So is this something that could uh, help someone in a position like I find myself in? Yeah, okay, so when I hear you talk and tell that story, one of the themes that I hear in the background is lacking clarity. I feel life calling me to something bigger. I'm not sure what that is, and I'm not sure how to get there. Like, practically speaking, what would it look like to completely replace my day job income doing this other thing? Um, so kind of clarity, uh, kind of strategy, and when I hear those types of things, it sounds like being in the corn maze. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a sense that there is something beyond the maze, but I'm not sure what it is and I'm not sure how to get there. So I'm just gonna keep going down these rows faster or we can just stand you on the ladder. Now you can see what it is and you can see the path to get there. And now you are empowered to choose freely. You can take the path or not take the path. How that happens, practically speaking, is when something is fuzzy in our mind, when we're not sure, you know, I don't know if it's this or it could be that. When we're not sure, it's like eyesight. And if you had a friend that kept holding reading material close and squinting at things far away, you wouldn't tell your friend, yeah, yeah, keep it up. You just need to try a little harder. No, you'd be like, you dummy, get some glasses. Eyesight isn't a character defect. It's not a willpower defect. It takes an external reference point. It's the same when something's fuzzy inside. We don't quite have the clarity that we need. You can't solve that with effort or willpower. And this is why meditating and journaling and uh, reading books and talking to counselors and experts and life coach, this is why it doesn't bring the clarity that we've been seeking because it's not a character defect. It's not a willpower or a journaling deficit. Um, it takes an external reference point and a new scaffolding for the mind to cling to, to grow, to see things from a higher perspective. Um, in the work I do, uh, we call that scaffolding mindset pushups, just like a physical pushup rewires your nervous system and rewires your body's metabolism because your body now has to shuttle nutrients to different parts because of the push-up and the damage it created in your muscles, a mindset push-up rewires your neurology and it rewires the vantage point that your mind solves problems from. And now you're able to choose freely. I can look at it from this way or I can see this thing over here that give me another perspective. So what I would say is if you were to take the mind scan and look at the graph of your thinking patterns, you might be surprised to find that the thing that's been holding up the show all this time, as far as clarity and insight and strategy, and it might not be what you think it is. We maybe have just been shining our flashlight in the wrong corner all these years. That's, yeah, that's powerful. Uh, that's, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. 
Now, you've been doing this for a while. I mean, right? I mean, granted, the book's coming out, but you've been uh, teaching people and 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 training people and and, and so forth um, for for a bit now, right? I mean, that's that's kind of is that like your main focus? Are you co- a coach? Of sorts. Uh, um, so th- this is yes, this is what I do for a living. Um, but again, I stress you don't have to take, th- be a client to to take the mind scan. Just you know, sure, try it, sure. decide what you think, try it for yourself, and you keep all the information. It's it's yours. Go get them. Um, well, it, I, I don't have room anyways. What happens is when somebody's been wrapped up in the weeds, and they get back on the beaten path, they're able to run free. When you're wrapped up in the weeds, it feels like you're expending an awful lot of energy and getting not a lot of momentum. And that's where that staying comes up. Like you mentioned earlier, you're like, okay, something's not right here. It yeah. shouldn't be this hard. Show me this hard. Um, so yeah, it's just a joy to get those people back on the beaten path so they can run free. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, excellent. Well, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your TEDx uh, talks um, because okay. that's uh, how, how, how did that come about? Is that something you kind of uh, applied for somewhere or somebody heard your work and recommended you? How, how did that come about? Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it, it would be a joy to demystify TEDx. So there, there's TED proper. Uh, there's one in London. There's one in Los Angeles. I think there's one somewhere else. I can't remember where. Uh, TED proper is invite only. Um, they come and find you. And they find you because uh, a friend of somebody on the committee knows that you're the one who wrote that New York Times bestseller book or whatever it is, or read your research paper on whatever it is. They come and find you. Um, that convention is, it, it costs something like I think I've heard from people that have gone that it's like $5,000 to get a ticket to go into this exclusive invite only audience. Mm. Ted is legit a big deal. TEDx, not so much. There's a TEDx in every town all across the world. And this is kind of like the brightest and most interesting topics in that region. If you like watching TED and you like ideas worth sharing and it's inspiring to you, then I would say, put your name in the hat. Uh, Go to the TEDx map, find the closest TEDx event to you or draw a circle on the map, how far are you willing to drive and apply? Who knows? They might call (laughs) you up on stage to give your talk. Now, here's the thing, if you don't get accepted that that everybody needs to know about applying to a TED event. Whether or not you get accepted has nothing to do with the quality of your topic or how interesting your topic it is. It has to do with, does your topic move the whole day forward? So they are balancing a a whole day event. And so that's why they can't have three people talk about productivity or five people talk about K through 12 education. You might have the best K 12 education idea ever, but if they also have four other people, you know, don't take right. it personal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're trying to balance the whole day and maybe K 12 education isn't a fit for that year at all. And, <laughs> and they'll call you back next year. But all it comes down to is just draw a circle, put your name in the hat. If it's a good fit for that flow that day, they'll bring you out. Excellent. Uh, okay, so just a couple more questions, and we'll we'll call it a day here. But I, I am interested in 
once somebody gets your, your book, Thing Patterns of Success, uh, and, um, and they go through it and they're like, man, I really want to do the mind map and I want to do the mental push-ups and, uh, and uh, I, I, want, I want to rewire and you know, I want to live my best life, right? So, uh, and, and you, and you, you know, you said you're a coach, you, you've got a lot of clients and you're not, you know, you're looking to help people by putting the book out. Um, at least that's what it seems like to me. I, I could, I could be wrong, but, um, my, my understanding from listening to you is it kind of seems like you put the book together mostly because you wanted to get this out into people's hands and empower them to be able to live the best life that they could live. Yes. Um, yes. And yes. so if that's the case, uh, and we need uh, someone to kind of help us interpret that. And you're full. Are there uh, other uh, other mentor type uh, people that that you or you, or your company or your your folks can recommend for us to go and uh, work with uh, to help go through those blind spots? Yes. Yeah. And that's that's just a process of taking the the mind scan itself. If you take the mind scan, you've got somebody who will go through that graph with you. Oh, like okay. It, it's part of it. Oh, excellent. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, I mean, I, uh, I hadn't, ha- I, I had hoped that I would get a chance to do that before we got onto the podcast that didn't happen due to scheduling. Um, but I'm going to, because I'm, I'm really excited about doing it. Uh, I always like to kind of, uh, in the show, uh, in, in a way that I give uh, our guest, uh, who is always gracious to be here with us, the opportunity to put out whatever message or voice they want to, to the audience and into the world. So if there's anything that you would just like to say to the audience about anything, I just want to give you an open floor to be able to do that uh, before we wrap everything up. I would restate my opening sentence. The only reason you have the problem you currently do is because you haven't taken on a bigger problem. If you are wrestling with your health, Go to work solving that problem for everyone else in the world that has the same problem. And I guarantee you will find a new level of innovation and resourcefulness. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. I, I, I just can't thank you enough uh, for, for being here and bringing your expertise and a new way of thinking to us. Uh, it's, it's been eye-opening for me uh, on a personal level, and I'm, I'm sure it will be for the audience as well. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what did you think? I hope you found his take on things as exciting as I do. Uh, Since we recorded this episode, I have had a chance to take the uh, mind scan assessment, uh, and he's right about a number of things. It is very interesting. Uh, I found some clarity around a number of areas in my life, which gave me some food for thought, but it wasn't all roses and lotto winnings. Uh, I want to be upfront and honest with you about my experience. Uh, There is a cost to the mind scan process about $50, which is really reasonable, um, as you'll find, I mean, it's as reasonable for this type of assessment as you'll find anywhere. Uh, to give you an idea, I paid over a hundred dollars for the Clifton strengths finder assessment a few years ago. And this one really gave me more interesting things to talk about or to think about than that one did. Next, I scheduled a call with Jared to discuss the results. I mean, it was a fascinating call and I learned a good bit more about myself and the results. And then when we started to talk about how to turn the results into forward moving progress, it was a moment where my excitement turned kind of to disappointment because this entire process was leading to, as you may have guessed, a coaching sales pitch. My heart kind of sank as I realized the path that I had hoped to reach 
was just a little bit further away. I had hoped the results would lead me to an actionable path at that point. But the reality was, or at least it felt like, even though Jared had stated in the podcast interview he was full and couldn't take any more clients, the mind scan assessment is really what is known in the digital marketing industry as a lead magnet or a tripwire offering to validate a serious buyer for an upsell to a more expensive product, in this case, one-on-one coaching. All sales trainers will tell you it's important to create a sense of urgency to get customers or clients to buy the product you're selling. This is why they almost always offer a better quote deal up front than at a later date. Uh, In my case with Jared, he gave me 24 hours to discuss it with my wife before the offer went away. And let me be really clear here. It was indeed a generous offer and I am very appreciative of his willingness to work with me from a financial point of view. Unfortunately, I couldn't swing the cost, uh, at least not until the first of the year, no matter how much I wanted to buy. So I, I asked the question, can we start after the first of the year? To which the response was, and again, please understand, this is the way sales are created. Uh, even if we don't, even if we dislike that situation that it puts us as the buyer in, but that is the way sales is done. And I'm not sure, you know, the, the response I got was, I'm not sure this coaching program will still be around after the first of the year. Now, I want to pause to reflect here for just a moment. This was 100% truthful. He might decide to do something else in his life. He might decide to retire. He could pass away, God forbid. None of us are sure what tomorrow brings. However, I've always found it to be a little disingenuous by sales folks to do this kind of pressure selling. Um, They take it away kind of tactic, uh, and it preys on someone's FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, And it's uncomfortable, especially for someone like me who desperately wants to be a part. But it works. It's a tactic that works well. Now, I don't like these tactics, even if they work, but what it came down for me is I just didn't have the money to spend. Now, now that I've explained kind of my direct experience with this, please indulge me in my perspective on it. I believe everyone should have a coach. They help us to be better. I've been looking for one that fits me for several years. In fact, this podcast is an outgrowth of that search. Jared, for me, is a perfect fit. Sales stuff aside, you can't hold that against anyone. That's just kind of the way sales business is done. Uh, there's a whole, there's a whole field of research behind it. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with those sales tactics, even if we don't, don't care for them. Uh, and so I don't ever hold that against anyone. Um, and I would still jump the chance to be coached by him. I really would. Uh, and I hope to, to make that happen in the near future, provided he'll take me on when my finances are in the right situation. But I wanted to stress that if what you heard in this show resonates with you, please do yourself a favor uh, and check him out. You can find him at mindsetperformance.co. And uh, I really can't speak highly enough about him. And I'm so very thankful he spent time with us on the show, gave us the rundown, uh, and then afterwards was so very fair with me as well. So um, I really like the guy. You should check him out. Check out his YouTube uh, stuff. It's really, really good. He's he's really... a next level sort of guy. Uh, and, and he can really take you to really great places just by the thought processes that he has. Uh, so I, I can't recommend him enough. As always, don't forget, you might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon. And we can't wait to hear your voice. Where are these?